Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast, a podcast all about slow living in a fast-paced world. My name is Brooke McCallery and I'm very, very glad that you are here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're here too. Welcome to episode 187 where you speak. Sorry. That you're able to share with us after your giggling fit. Yep. <laughs> the lovely Katie Bowman from... From Nutritious Movement. Nutritious, from The Nutritious Movement. She's the founder of, of the, the Nutritious Movement movement. Um, Katie is a biomechanist of awesomeness. Katie, I just, I am so enraptured by Katie's story that uh, I'm really excited to share this conversation today. Uh, Katie is someone who I was sort of introduced to I'm sure I read about her in a magazine at my chiropractor's a couple of years ago and her ideas about functional and incidental exercise really struck me. She was, even back then, she was writing about um, being barefoot and rearranging her home to better allow for consistent movement. Um, but I, I, it wasn't really until I started barefoot bushwalking that people kept saying, you need to read Katie Bowman's books, you need to, to go and look up Katie Bowman, that I found out just how incredible this whole nutritious movement movement is. So it was awesome to be able to sit down and talk to Katie. I loved every second of it. Who was it? Was it the, your chiropractor that so, first introduced you to Katie Bowman? Uh, no, it was, it kind of happened around the same time. So Andre, yeah. my chiropractor did mention it because Katie has written an entire book about diastasis recti, um, like the separation of stomach mm -hmm. muscles after having babies. So that was his recommendation to read about it. But at the same time, I had a number of people on Instagram and Twitter, uh, talking to me about her ideas behind functional it's when the universe movement. brings two people together. Well, totally. And it was specifically her work on barefoot being barefoot that I was fascinated by and not only like the grounding nature of that because you know I speak about barefoot bushwalking a bit uh, but also the like the physical benefits of not having heavy solid based shoes on all the time was phenomenal and then I started to to research more about how she set up her home with her mm, family. You know, they don't have chairs. Fascinating that, and the entryway. Of yeah, her home so she with ripped the... up the floorboards or the floor of her front hallway and replaced it with river stones, so that everyone who comes through gets this massive benefit of exercising all the bones and tendons in the feet when they walk into her home every time, and it just reawakens different muscles and allows your body to function in. A much more kind of holistic way and having barefooted once in my entire life on a bushwalk you on mean? a bushwalk yeah. recently i get it do you yeah you liked it yeah i really did mm. couldn't do it in the summer Why? actually no i'll rephrase that i couldn't do it on some bushwalks in summer yeah because of snakes and bull ants yeah scare me more Spiders and snakes are always a threat. But I, not necessarily snakes, to be right. perfectly honest with you. It's more like the ants and the spiders hiding underneath leaves. I'm, I'm <laughs> I am allergic to ants, like quite yeah, allergic to ants. Yeah. So I understand what you're saying. But winter, Still worth it. But winter, I think. 
Anyway, we digress. Sure thing. Now, I just wanted to quickly mention that people can still pre-order your book. We are mm-hmm. literally a week away. Yes. Yes, Or just we about are. a week away from the Australian and New Zealand launch of Slow and pumped, really pumped. Thank you all of you that have pre-ordered the book. This is almost the last chance to pre-order it and get it when it's launched. Yes. So all pre-orders go out, I think, on the 23rd of August. A couple of days before. You actually get it a little bit before the Yeah, you actually get it before the actual launch. So if you haven't, I encourage you to do so. There's a link to that in the show notes to this podcast, episode 187 with Katie Bowman. Mm -hmm. So Katie Bowman... All the links to her websites and books and everything will be over on the web on our website. But her website is nutritiousmovement.com. And Katie also has a podcast of her own called Katie Says. And I'd really encourage you to check both of those out. She's uh, usually active on social media. She's on a big social media break at the moment, which is interesting to me as someone who makes a living online. Uh, and we talk about that in today's conversation. But you can always get in touch with her via her website, if not her social channels. Uh, Yeah, and enjoy. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, Katie. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me. Uh, Since I discovered your work about six months ago, you've been someone I've had sitting in the back of my mind that I wanted to talk to because I think there's so much alignment between what you do in Nutritious Movement and what I talk about in Slow Living. And your name just kept coming up repeatedly in, you know, Facebook messaging and things like that. So I'm really stoked to chat with you. Yeah, I'm excited to see where your questions are. You know, I do so many movement podcasts, but I've never done a Slow Living podcast. So it'll be fun for me to to see how the answers work, I think, for some of your philosophies. Let's see how they go together. Yeah. So, I mean, I mentioned that I I discovered you about six months ago, and it was when I had first, I guess, uh, taken first tentative steps into barefoot bushwalking. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'd seen it mentioned a lot uh, online, and it really I'm, I'm a big bushwalker. I enjoy it very much. But I decided one day to to head off barefoot, do the second half of my bushwalk barefoot. And it was honestly a revelation of an experience. It was something that caused me to slow down and pay attention to where I was going and what my feet were doing and how my feet were feeling. But the, I guess the physical hangover of that was this lightness. I felt like my feet had had the most beautiful massage that they've ever had. And I I just never looked back. It's something that I've really embraced since. And I discovered you and your work I guess, as a connection to that, and then went on to discover everything else you do uh, and this whole idea of nutritious movement and how aligned it is with slow living. So I guess to start off, could you give us an overview of what nutritious movement actually is and why it's important? Well, nutritious movement is, it's my brand, but it's a name for everything that I'm doing. And I do a lot. Like Mm. if you come to my website, you'll see books on feet and books on the abdomen and books on natural movement. Everything's about movement. But then, you know, if you're on my Instagram, you'll see that I'm talking about parenting and, Mm. and, and how, how do you move nutritiously 
now that you have a three month old and also a three year old and 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 what's the dilemma with time? How are time and movement and convenience all related? And and what happens if you have a nine to five desk job? How does that impact you on the movement level? That's that's kind of one level of my work, the the practical. This the other reason I use nutritious movement is because I think people have a very good understanding of nutrition Hmm. to the extent where you know that you don't just need to eat. Probably by this point, there's macronutrients and micronutrients and we understand things, what, what, what a nutritional deficiency is and that there's ailments that are associated with a lack of particular nutrients. And so I use that kind of as a metaphor to say it's the same with movement. It's not only that you need exercise in the same way that you don't only need food. Your movement is meeting certain needs depending on what types of movements that you're doing at what frequencies and how many minutes, but also which body parts are moving and which aren't. That it's, mm-hmm. that it's actually a pretty subtle prescription, if you will, or distribution of movement nutrients. And then also, I mean it quite literally, where a nutrient is something that you put into your body, whether it's in food or if it's coming, coming from sunlight, that when, when your body interfaces or interacts with that input, your cells behave a particular way. And movement operates the same way. It is, it is functioning like a nutrient and really should, uh, I'm lobbying for it eventually to be thought of as a nutrient in that same way where there there are inputs that are affecting your cellular behavior and and that the issues that you experience when you are sedentary aren't only limited to the musculoskeletal. It's not only your knees and your hips. It's Mm. how calm you feel, you know, or how relaxed or joyful or that the same way like that if you had a nutritional deficiency it's not only related to the stomach and the teeth and the tongue it's it's your whole body can behave a different way depending on what you're eating and your whole body can behave a different way depending on how you're moving that it's it's more than just the parts that you think of as relating to benefiting from movement so that's in a in a body in a nutshell that that is what i mean by nu- nutritious movement it's it's simply that we have a need for movement that's that's more complex than we realize yeah and i think that's so appealing to me because i was brought up with the idea that yes we needed to move yes we needed to be active we needed to, we needed to exercise and to exercise as an adult was to go to the gym or to take a class or to play a sport and then that was it you know we'd kind of tick that active box for the day and then we can go on with our convenience-filled life <laughs> after right. that. But what I love about what you talk about and what you teach is that movement is and should need, it needs to be part of all elements of our day. And you've actually designed your family home with that in mind. I mean, to the point where, and I'm sorry if this is outdated information, but you know, you mm. don't have chairs. You guys sit on the floor to eat, and you, your beds are futons on the floor, and things like that, where it just it really does require you to move all different parts of your body at all different parts of the day. Is that something that you arrived at early in this in this process, or is that something you've you've kind of discovered over time as your family's grown? Uh, I would definitely say it wasn't from the beginning. Um, I've been 
working in this field of movement and, and biomechanics for over 20 years. And my children are very young, six and almost five. Mm -hmm. And so I would say, um, the kind of the radicalness that we've done to our home as far as facilitating more movement, that's fairly new. I would say not even six years old in that 20 year timeline. You notice a little bit about my background. I started in the exercise field. And even when I was at university studying biomechanics in, you know, a kinesiology department, kinesiology, which is the study of human movement is still really just exercise and athletics in the same way. Like that's pretty much how everyone thinks of what human movement is. And that's what I was taught. And that made a lot of sense to me. And I wasn't particularly active until I was a later teenager. And then I started really enjoying exercise. You know, I would do it two or three hours and, and that was fine. And then I went to graduate school and I was still studying mechanics. And then when I was in graduate school, I just, I just started thinking about like this, what a strange need exercise was because, you know, my exercise experience was uh, school stadiums and tracks mm -hmm. and gyms and bars and machines and things that didn't grow on trees, you know? And I was just <laughs> thinking for this thing that we need, it seems strange that it doesn't really occur in nature where like, if you were telling me about the nutrients I need, the fact that it grows on a tree or from the ground made a lot of sense to me. Oh, we need, you know, micronutrients from water that come up from the ground and that's where they get them. That made sense to me. The fact that the earth contained what I needed made sense. The fact that this thing that I needed required factories and metal bars and air conditioning and music didn't make as much sense mm. to me. So I just, that question popped into my head. And then I was like, why do we need exercise? And I couldn't, couldn't really find the answer through even shallow thinking. And then, and then I was realizing, Oh, wait a minute. It's, it's language here. That's getting in my way. We need movement. Okay. Well, where did, where does movement come? You know, like an apple grows on a tree and vitamin C is found in these plants and, you know, and, and, and in areas where there aren't these vitamins, there are other animals that contain these vitamins, you know, so that humans can exist here. Okay, this makes sense. Where is the movement gone? Where does the movement come? And through that line of thinking, which is more relatively new, I would say the first 10 years of my work was exclusively traditional thinking of exercise and movement. I could help people through just like, you know, any personal trainer will help you with form and help mm -hmm. you with program design. I could certainly take anyone and get them to a better physical experience, you know, one that had them with less aches and pains through following that. But then I kept running into the time factor, which is, you know, I feel so good when I do this X, Y, and Z program, I'd like to do more, but my life doesn't allow it. I only have an hour. And I was like, yeah, that seems weird that there's something that you could do that would give you a better experience that you don't have time for. <laughs> and that's, I think, part of when I started to, at the same time, look at cross-cultural data on how are other humans moving right now and what are their physical experiences and, and why can they fit more movement in? And then, of course, it took me outside of my own culture to see like, oh, we just, we're a culture of convenience. We're a, we're a culture that we value convenience and no one has ever said that convenience isn't less time, it's less motion. Mm -hmm. That was a recent reframing for me. And I was saying it, I would say more implicitly the last few years and then explicitly 
in Movement Matters, which was a book kind of on this phenomenon, which is, oh, the movement that you're missing are the movements that used to, you know, quote, grow in nature. They mm. were the movements that you used for gathering your food and for your water and to traverse from point A to point B and to tend to your children and to build shelter and dig holes and dig like these were the movements that used to be required for your survival. And as we developed ways of getting what we needed without much movement, our need for movement didn't diminish in the same way that just because you can buy 17 candy bars that meet your caloric requirement, you could still be malnourished, that yeah. you have to kind of go back to these whole foods, these this diet, if you will, that has everything that you still require, even though other foodstuffs have been made available. So, so that's when I started changing. Well, I, I started changing my home simply for the practical. I had two small children. The time that I had allotted for exercise was filled with things that I had never had to do before. You know, mm. when I was a single college student, you know, when all of us exercise the most, you'll probably see it correlate to the time when you had the least amount of responsibilities. <laughs> And so as you add responsibilities, the thing that goes is the thing that no one is really pressing you to do, which is exercise, right? You'll have someone pipe up if you haven't made any food and your body will let you know when you need to sleep. Your body's also letting you know that you need to move, but we don't know how to hear those signals. We know what hunger is, but we don't know what mm. lack of movement feels like because we've been told it has other names. You know, we've been, we've given it other clinical names for really the compound effects of sedentarism. So so that's when I started changing my environment. I could only do so many hip opening class, you know, drive to a class to stretch my hips and, you know, do squats in a class format before I realized if I just got rid of my couch, I would do this 200 times a day and I didn't have to leave anybody and I didn't have to get childcare and I didn't have to stress about it. And it was distributed better than in a single hour. And I just over like four or five years, I mean, we're still... We got rid of our couch when my son was five months old. He's mm -hmm. six now. And I would say that we've just had a slow, <laughs> a slow but steady conversion to minimalism <laughs> on, on many, on not only the furniture level, but it's like the couch and the, the support of the shoes. And then finally the shoes themselves. And then this last year, a thermostat, like really reducing heat adding in heat and saying, if you want more warmth, you're going to have to move for it. And we're not going to pipe in fuel for you to do it. You, you already have a signal that cold was a lack of movement signal. That, mm. that was, that was your lack of movement signal. I'm not going to turn it off by pumping the heat in. Let's all go for a walk. And guess what? We're stripping off our sweaters now. Yeah. So, so it was, that's, Maybe that's where it ties into slow living is in order to get the movement that we've needed, we've had to make changes that you could put under minimalism or or slow living. But we didn't make those changes because we thought like slow living wasn't our agenda. Yeah. And maybe it's not anyone's agenda. Maybe it's just like we wanted to eat more healthily. So we started making our food from scratch. Now you're slow living because it takes more time. But that wasn't the intent, you know, maybe some people like the way magazines look when the homes are slow and stuff and think I would like to do that. But I feel like the, the impetus or the momentum comes from 
you needing to heal some other aspect. And for us, it was sedentarism. And we've just found our house getting more and more slow in our lives, becoming minimal, but I would also argue maximal. Yeah, exactly. Maximal movement, maximal awareness, you know, maximal family time, personal time. It's all maximized. So I don't know how it got the minimal (laughs) label. See, this is one of my issues with the whole label of minimalism, you know, if the removing of the excess. But it's so you remove the excess so that you can have more of the good stuff, you know. And I think going back to what you were saying about slow living, I don't think – look, I think if someone decides that a trend of slow living is something they want to pursue, that's fine. But unless there is a a why, you know, a deeper reason, like for you it was was to bring more movement to your family life, I think without that why it's – you're going to really struggle to make it and, you know, a lifestyle, a complete lifestyle shift. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's – a big point of connection between the way you live and this idea of slow living is, I guess, simplifying uh, and removing some of those conveniences in order to go deeper. You know, I think that's what convenience costs us in so many ways. It's connection, you know, either to the food that we're eating or the way that we're moving or not moving or the way that we're communicating with people or the way that we're parenting. Convenience certainly gives you something back I guess but I really think that we've we need to question what the cost of that something is and that's what I love about what you're doing there's so much intention in it in everything and I think it's that intentionality that that questioning that's so important as well in creating a life that that adds up to something greater than it was yeah I, I want to go back to something that you were talking about at the beginning of that answer where you focused on the outdoors aspect as well and I know that you spend as much time outdoors with your family as possible. Is the reason for that simply the nutritious side of it? Or do you find that there are other additional benefits in spending a lot more time outside? Well, it's it's challenging because if you get down to the nuts and bolts of what a nutrient is, it's simply, it's simply something that we require. Mm. So, you know, when I was in school... I mean, I think I was given a list of three human requirements, food, water, shelter. But of course, that's not, that's not even close to the, <laughs> to the actual need. So going outside, I would say anything that it gives me is something that I required. It's just that because I've been cut off from being outside for so long and have survived – I don't file those things under requirements. Like if you just talk about, you know, a calm mind mm. and just being outside, you know, you, when you go outside long enough, if you go backpacking or camping for a few days, or even if you just go out for a few, a few hours on a walk, you know, at first you, you've got your phone and you've, you've come with all the tensions of the day of packing or whatever to get out there. But after you've been out there for a while, there's kind of a, a calmness that comes over you or a stress that dissipates. Mm -hmm. And because we're not in that state very often, even though we used to exist much more frequently in that state, is that a nutrient? I don't know. I don't Mm -hmm. know if, you know, like I can go quite a long time without any vitamin D years and years as diseases slowly develop. And I can go for years and years without a calm mind. Yet vitamin D is a nutrient because when you get it, those diseases kind of dissipate, those symptoms dissipate. And so I would say that outside is providing what you require, actual nutrients. It's just some are, you know, we could say vitamin D 
because someone has identified it already for us. There is no vitamin calm mind, mm-hmm. right? There's no vitamin de-stress. There's no vitamin community. There's no vitamin texture for your feet. Yet I think we could still argue that these are inputs that in their absence, some sort of physiological situation develops that when we put them in or something that is designed to medicate those things, they go away. And so so I go outside for for the health benefits. Like that was like this whole transition I think came as an interest in being more healthy, more thriving, less feeling bad every day, <laughs> you know, if whatever you want to call health. But what I found out there was a whole list of things that I didn't even know I needed. And yeah. or like you know you you've transitioned from wearing shoes to not wearing shoes. Before you had gone barefoot, no one could explain to you that you had a need for going mm-hmm. barefoot. Nope. It was only after the fact that you can feel the limiting effect of a shoe, right? Absolutely. And so being outside a lot is just like that. Until you've really adapted your body and let it experience kind of more an immersive period of time with abundant movement out in nature, dealing with other organisms and maybe other people going through their own redevelopment in this space, you won't be aware that you need that again and again until you've had it. And yeah. I would call those things nutrients that that in the future, I mean, we already have nature deficit disorder, right? There's a lot of people, it's focused on children of going, hey, kids who don't have this are really expressing with some with some serious issues. And it's not that there's something wrong with them, there's something wrong with their environment, their mm-hmm. their lack of exposure to nature. So I think that that the bulk of what you're getting out there, whether it's peace or joy or sun or or wind or complex terrain, that those are going to end up all being nutrients because they come from the earth, as do we, and we've been in a complex relationship with our ecology, the environment, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And I don't think that we can change it in 100 or 200 years of not needing those things any longer. And seeing that generation of kids coming through with a, a you know a big percentage of them not spending enough time outdoors and the impact that that's having, I think it's not a, a stretch to say that that's got a lot to do with technology and mm. the fact that it's you know it's basically permeated almost every area of, of modern life, particularly for kids. I think how. How do we combat that? How can parents who are busy, who are overwhelmed, who um, may not have the time that they want to have to spend you know, hours at a time outside with their kids, how can they encourage their kids outdoors to, to start exploring? You know, it was my my son. <laughs> we, we got our first smartphones right before my son was born. Mm-hmm. And I travel a lot for work and he would go with us and someone suggested getting a, a game an, an uh, educational game for him, you know, to keep him occupied or calm on planes. And I was like, okay, I didn't, you know, know anything. And otherwise, and we got one and, and we had this one game that he played when he was traveling, but he knew it was there. And it was just, you know, a, a simple little game. And then when we were home, he's like, can I have it? Can I have it? And, you know, you're just badgered all the time. Mm -hmm. And I'm just saying, no, this is for traveling. No, please, please, no. And then finally he just said, if I can't have it, then why is it here? (laughs) 
And I was like, great. He's like, can you just get rid of it? And I said, yes, it was gone and it never concerned him again. Yeah. He made that observation. So it's kind of like putting, you know, a big frosted chocolate cake on the corner of the table. If you think of, you know, the fact that we're kind of wired for, for, for ease, for simple sugars, for easy learning, right? It's, I, I feel that it, children are so keen to observe and learn and interact and we don't have the time for it anymore. So they still have this need so we can give them this thing that allows them to stuff their brains full of interaction. It's, you know, it's, it's taking the best of a, of a childhood and putting it with the thing that gives us the most convenience of like, I, we don't have time. Mm -hmm. And then you end up though, with kind of these things that, you know, different experts are calling eye brain and that, you know, that the brain is being affected by this thing. So, you know, just eliminating some of the technology from your home. And, you know, we don't have a television and we still have the same smartphones and there's no more games and there never has been. So reducing it, it's kind of the same as diet, right? If you didn't want your kids to eat junk food, then don't put it in the cart at the grocery yeah. store and don't put it in the thing. Like then no one has to ask for it. And then the next piece though is, but now you have this being who requires a certain amount of interaction. Like that's where it becomes a little bit more tricky. You can't just take away. We have to go, okay, well, what can we, what can we fill? And because some technological devices or things have become so easy, we're more stocked on those than the other things like, I don't know, puzzles or notepads or drawings or, or whatever else. And so you start by one, not making it so easy to stay inside. Yeah. Right. If, if there's nothing of interest. The second thing is you yourself have to go outside. You know, children are wired to learn from their the next group up. Mm -hmm. And I recognizing that everyone works. I should just be really clear. I work full time. I've changed some ways about how I work, but but I am a full time worker, even more so maybe more like 60 to 80 hours a week. Mm -hmm. So it's not coming from someone who doesn't work very much. But if I'm going to serve breakfast, I will put it outside. Right. You know, you just put out a blanket and you put it outside. If they right. want to eat, that's where the food is. They're going to go outside to eat. Bring your notepads out there because once they're out there, you have to – it's the inertia. You have to overcome yeah. the inertia. And so, again, you know, Instagram is the you, – you, you see a picture of a picnic on Instagram in the field and you're like, that's amazing. I don't have time to do that. But it's like, that's a sheet and Instagram. It's a square. It has a caption. It seems better than it is. It seems <laughs> unattainable, but in the end it's a sheet and just throw some muffins or some hard boiled eggs out there. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be outside, mm -hmm. you know, um, set up a, let the kids set up a picnic, let them do the work, you know, get them involved in the thing because you know, a lot of these nature experts will say that that this is the thing that kids are actually pulled to early on. That's that's squelched more often. That's dangerous. That's dirty. Don't get your yeah. clothes dirty. You know, so so let let them set the parameters of creating it. How do you how do you want to be outside? Um, are your are your vacations before and after work? You know, doing uh, family walks. It's hard because I think we work all day. And then we come home and that's dinner time. And now that's indoor time culturally. Yes. But we do nighttime walks all the time. We'll make dinner and throw it in the backpack and just eat it as we're out walking or exploring as a family. Now, everyone who went to work that day is now home. Everyone's home from school and we're going to walk 
together, which means we have to get over this idea that dinner is supposed to be seated around a table, you know, with someone at the head and passing dishes around, which is, again, yeah. it's a, that's another kind of a, a cultural stereotype of how f- eating needs to be. So just seeing that um, there's kind of an infinite number of ways you can do it, but definitely cutting down on the detractors to it is a, is an important step. And one thing I think with parents say, well, my kids would complain. They don't want to do that. It's like, you could say that pretty much for anything. Like I kind of find my kids <laughs> complain all day long, even when they're getting exactly what they asked for. So I might as well be outside while they're complaining and they might as well be outside where they're complaining. So I think that the complaint is kind of like, if you're first starting to run, your body is complaining, right? Yeah. Like you go out and your body is saying, stop running. Like, what are you doing? This is too much work. You're feeling things open up. Your brain is like, stop, but you push past that. And then you settle into a groove where everything goes fine. You caused us to change. Now it's easier for us to stay on the move. Anyone who's a runner will have experienced that Mm -hmm. phenomenon. It's exactly the same thing with children. What you're getting is that initial resistance that keeps you in the same habit over and over. You don't, you don't want to deal with the whining. You don't want to deal with the get up. Let's all move out. That's your job kind of as a parent is to be the momentum and to direct where you want your children to go. And it's a lot of work, you know, and the more you have, the more work it is, but once you do it, they don't run back inside anymore, right? You're out, you're going. Now their momentum is carrying them and you're fine. And then they're developing the skill, which takes that resistance down every time. The more frequently mm. you do it, then they just, you know, now you're sleeping outside because it's yeah. more fun to sleep outside, which you will discover once you get more comfortable there. Yeah, exactly. And it's just this step-by-step process. And I think going back to, you know, your comment about Instagram as well, it's about realizing what our priorities are our priorities don't need to be make a pretty picnic and take a pretty picture our priorities need to just be get outside you know yeah and and take that pressure off ourselves to make it instagram worthy and just make it aligned with our highest priorities which in this case is getting outside now you you do work full-time you do have like a full life and lots of different moving parts to your work how do you keep a lid on tech personally Well, I'm on a social media break right now for two months. Right. Social media, you could say that social media is actually my job, right? Like it's a a very large followings. I do it daily, multiple times a day. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's a big form of education. I just wrote a big piece on this. I'm taking two months off and here's why, because I don't actually think, I think that I have bought into this. It's easier. Like social media, for example, I believe I perceived was easier But as I'm digging down, so I'm on the break actually right now, I'm in like my third week of eight weeks and, oh, the amount of things I have gotten done by eliminating (laughs) social media for that period of time. And I have a strategy for a lot of people who work and perceive it as being essential to their income. I'm like, here, here's, let me walk you through that argument a little bit and you can see, and here's what I've done, pulled up older, you know, quote unquote, outdated technologies that were just fine until the new technology came in that required I really engage less. So that's one is is taking breaks of different types, uh, screen free weeks, tech free Sundays, Mm -hmm. big, big breaks like I'm on right now. That that has helped me. Like I said, I've been doing this for a long time. I think the thing that has helped me is recognize again that faster isn't 
better. It's just, it's just faster. Like how do you go slow living on, on technology is to like, you have your phone, but now my phone is a camera and a phone and a, and a texting and my emails and all my social media and a couple other softwares that I use for work. And it seems so much more convenient because it's just in one. But what I found was by carrying just that one, like I stopped learning how to read maps and mm-hmm. the ability to navigate, the ability to really pay attention to where I was because I had outsourced it to my phone. And so uh, going back, you know, gathering my camera and my husband got a flip phone so that we could still have some elements. But when you have everything, you tend to use everything even when it wasn't your intention to use, right? It's kind of like stripping away the aspects of food that are less nutritious, like getting rid of hydrogenated oils. You know, like a food is good, like you take some good elements, but you've packaged it with kind of other crap that tax you a little bit. So going like, well, maybe we can just take a step back and can we take another step Mm. back? And, you know, I'm watching my kids go to a nature school. And so, you know, I'm in the Instagram mode right now. So anything amazing has got to be photographed where they're at the level of sketch it. Mm. They open their books and they gaze at it. You know, I can take a picture of it and then I I don't even have to look at it really because I have that picture that I can look at again. So I don't even really even engage in the moment. I just take a picture of it. That's, that is now how I'm interacting, right? For them, it's drawing it and being so still and watching it for such a long time that they can capture the the details and whether or not they make it to the paper, their brain or their mind has those details where I have like almost less because I didn't even look at the thing at all. I just looked at the camera taking a picture of it. And then I'm thinking more and more like, and the more time I spend outside, maybe I'm just supposed to be looking at it. Like there's no point to even to document it at all. It's just being with it, which mm-hmm. gets to those other nutrients of what are you like being in the moment, obser- observing. And then all of a sudden you hear sounds like I was looking at something and now I hear a bird call, which you can't capture on your picture. Maybe you can make a video and go back and listen to it. So it's just my way of balancing it is to recognize it for what it is and always pay attention to the detractors of it Mm -hmm. and then be able to relate those when I'm starting to experience symptoms of hyperstimulation, of lack of engagement, lack of appreciation, lack of gratitude, pressure to have to take a picture of every moment, thus it it didn't exist (laughs) if I didn't share it, you know, and that, so it's just, a, I think just observation at this point, I'm going to observation and going towards minimalism. Yeah. Old phones only like I, we have refurbished phone, you know, and so not as far as a consumption, not buying brand new gadgets. I've never upgraded my software. So then it just automatically keeps me from getting half the apps I think I want to get sometimes Mm -hmm. like, sorry, your phone's too old. I was like, okay, well, that was the boundary I set. So that's That's fine. And so, you know, instead of feeling the pressure, like I'm going to miss out on the next thing. So I just, just slowly, I'm going towards minimalism into technology and in shoes, both those things stepwise. (laughs) Top and bottom. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's just, you nailed it before, you know, it's paying attention and paying attention, like the awareness of how it's making us feel and how it's making us act and act and interact and, you know, all of the, the 
the positives, of course, but also the negatives. And when we are feeling deficient or hyperstimulated in some area, it's having the awareness to pay attention and then to make a change, uh, you know, to, to then improve that situation. I think that's the key. And it's that's not something you can get overnight. You know, that's just something you develop over time, paying attention, you know, time and time again. I, I've got one more question. This one comes from a listener. She works a nine to five and her work environment does not allow things like sit and stand desks or, you know, the exercise balls as seats. And she already does things like set an alarm every hour for standing up and moving around the office and resetting kind of her, her eyes and all that kind of stuff. But she wants to know if there's anything else meaningful she can do while at work that encourages more movement. I, I wrote a whole book on the nine to fiver. You know, a lot of it assumes that you have some sort of sovereignty over your workstation. But if you don't at all, mm -hmm. then what you can control is how you're positioning your body while you're there. So there's definitely some ways that you can be monitoring your your repetitive positioning a little bit. So all sitting isn't equal. So making over the way that you sit so it is um, a little less, less taxing for certain areas of your body that you might be postures that you might be using more frequently than others to kind of uh, readjust your posture, you know, make sure you're not sitting on your tailbone and, you know, no one mm -hmm. can really stop you from making those micro movements of stretching your hands, you know, every few minutes and, you know, moving your neck around and cross sitting differently within your chair. So there's usually why you should recommend sit better is step one. So I have some key kind of alignment points for that and then sit differently, which means that there's really no one way to sit over and over again. Can you sit cross-legged when you're in your chair? Can you cross one leg over and then the other leg? And then for people who ask this question a lot about how can I move more at nine to five, my first reflex is to always ask them how much they're moving not during their nine to five. I think we get hyper-focused on how to manage the thing that we have the least control over, although you do have the most control over it. You can not work there, but setting that aside. Mm -hmm. How much are you moving in the hours before? Like, would you consider going to bed an hour or two earlier so that you could get up an hour before and, and have five miles of walking in before you even got to work, which would change, you know, the entire course of your day? Are you walking to work? Are you um, parking partway and walking in? Like, have you made any changes in your lifestyle around work? And then um, also after work, like I said, considering changing up the activities that you normally do so that they're more movement based. And then what about weekends? Like, are your weekends movement rich? Because those are the areas that I find are most under your control and, and people are least tapped into controlling them. They're like, well, like, don't you just have, like, I have to come home and like, we sit down to eat dinner. And like, so that's all sitting before and after. And you, you perceive that your before and after lives are just as immobile as your work life. And I find yeah. that once people start playing with the time surrounding, then all of a sudden they see that they actually have more freedom in the workday than they thought before. But it takes you applying your will to move during the more malleable times of your life for you to see it. Like, I feel like it's actual cultural thing right now. You can't see it because, because we're so sedentary. We're just used to not having any um, movement possibilities. So, so, so look at, in addition to the things I mentioned about what to do at your desk and whatnot, 
make sure you're fully optimizing the time before and after vacation weekends to make sure that movement is actually your intention. And then I think you'll see it. You know, you're not using the intercom as much at work. You're, you're walking, maybe you're taking walking meetings, or maybe there's a, maybe there are some other sedentary activities at your office that you didn't even realize that everyone's fine with you adding a little bit more movement Mm. to them. Like, are there things that need to be moved around that there are more, I'll use the word efficient, but more technologically based solutions in place that would allow you for more movement. How many minutes are you on social media while you're at work, which is usually a key. There's actually apps to track that if you really want the truth. (laughs) You could actually track how much time you are, and some employers are putting them on to see that maybe there's like two or three down hours, non-productive hours at work where you have to rest your mind. You know, it's not like you go to work and bang out eight hours of constant productivity. You're taking mental breaks, right? So there's no reason that those mental breaks can't be paired with movement breaks. If the HR departments of where you work can get with it enough, you know, to recognize that that's how humans operate, you know, best that when you sit Mm -hmm. down to work, there's going to be eight minutes of lull time. So what could you do during that lull time that would be good for you and, and ultimately the company because your health would be so much more robust that you would need less sick time and, you know, like all these other things that are very well researched in um, operations and human resource departments where the more healthy you are and the better you tend to yourself, the better employee you are overall. So maybe share this podcast with your employer. (laughs) Exactly. Step one. (laughs) Exactly. That's fantastic. Katie, thank you so much for your time and your insight. I really loved seeing how many places this idea of nutritious movement and slow living connect and align. Um, And I think there's so much more there that I personally want to explore. And, you know, my mind's kind of buzzing with all the possibilities. So thank you so much for, for sharing all of that with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That's a pleasure. Who is that? Hi, podcast.